Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Monroe, who is a Uranium CEO and also a Uranium market commentator with some insight into the industry for us. We talked to him about the announcement by the US Department of Energy yesterday with regards to restoring America's competitive nuclear advantage. A lot of contentious issues in there. It's wide ranging and covers the whole nuclear uh, cycle. And we talked to Brandon about what he thinks it's actually going to mean for uranium miners. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Brendan. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Yeah, very, very well. Um, good to speak to you. Another crazy week in the world of uranium. It is the sector that just keeps on giving. Yeah, it is, it is. And each one better than the last. And we're going to talk to you today about the market and your response to the US Department of Energy's um, announcement yesterday. They're talking about restoring America's competitive nuclear energy advantage being some mixed results. What's your, what's your take on it? Well, I guess when you say that, it depends from whose perspective. Uh, in terms of the nuclear energy industry broadly, and particularly from a Western world perspective, I think it's a very strong, favorable statement of intent and a very blunt, frank recognition of just the extent to which the US has dropped the ball. Uh, you don't have to go that far back in history when they absolutely dominated the space and Westinghouse had built more reactors than any other vendor on the planet. And, and, and in fact, that is still a, a true fact today, as much as Russia is really catching up on that and China's got big designs. So it was a, it was a, a brutal self-assessment of the extent to which the US has ceded its geopolitical influence in what remains probably the most geopolitically influential energy source. When you take into account proliferation and uh, all of those aspects, we saw a recognition that the use by Russia and China of nuclear energy vend as a geopolitical tool to obtain 100-year relationships, which is something that you and I have talked about before. So from that perspective, having the US come back into the market as a true competitor not just apparently in SMRs, but they're also looking to get a, get after it on conventional scale reactors. That's, uh, that's just great for the sector. Um, then if you look at the, the medium term, well, they've at least declared an intent to provide a lot of the support to the US nuclear fleet that uh, that fleet needs. There's uh, some good indications that they're going to level the playing field and iron out some of the distortions in uh, the energy sector in the US with subsidies to renewable energy and so on. So that's good for medium term demand. And then I suppose uh, then you've got to drill down to, well, in terms of short term effects, are you talking about this from the US producers point of view or the rest of the market point of view? And that's probably where the concept of mixed messages or mixed results or disappointment might be coming through. It's exactly exactly what I'm talking about because I think we've almost been spoiled uh, like, like, like kids in a Swedish shop, we've been spoiled for news flow and significant catalysts, uh, certainly on the supply demand fundamentals side with you know closures um, due to COVID-19 for all the right reasons, but the impact that that's had on the marketplace. And I think 
everyone leading when this was when it was announced that the U.S. Energy Department for Energy was going to um, actually release something yesterday. I think there was a fervor. Share prices really peaked. They they got up there, but on reading this, on announcement of this news, they dropped again. So it suggests to me the market wanted more. Are they right? I think so. I mean, to, to really know the answer to that, you'd have to do a big survey of a bunch of retail investors because I think they've largely been driving this story. And when we go back to when the original 232 results came out in that process that gave rise to the working group that produced this document, it was the same story again. Really very optimistic um, hopes as to what could be achieved for some of the US producers from the retail investment sector and a, and a bit of a hard landing there. Um, it, it said what we already knew in terms of what was on offer for those uh, producers. I think it just wasn't realistic to think that it would have a greater level of detail than what it had in that. But I think many investors were hoping that it had named names and it had named quantities and probably named prices when you look at some of the discussion on Twitter. And that was just never going to happen. So when I read it, I, I wasn't expecting any of that. So I just, I thought, okay, it is what I expected it to be. But wow, look at some of the language, look at some of the rhetoric on the bigger geopolitical piece. So for those following that angle and taking a more holistic, broader view of the sector, uh, it was remarkable, I thought. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's, it's too big of a plan to be able to have done analysis in this time frame and come up with the economics. I, I, I do buy that, but I still, it does come back for investors to how do I make money? How does this impact the businesses that I've invested my cold, hard cash, my hard-earned money into? And, and trying to interpret that. So I, I'd say, yes, perhaps the expectations were, this fervor was built, built up um, a little bit too high, but there's still not enough clues in yesterday's document, because I think it built on the announcement of, you know, several weeks ago of the 150 million bucks a year for 10 years, which again, didn't have much detail around it, but it does say there's a big intent there. And that's, that's great for the industry as a whole. But for me as a shareholder, what were the highlights? What were the little glimmers of hope or light at the end of the tunnel for, for me, do you think? So as a shareholder in the uranium sector generally, rather than say the, the three or four names who stood to benefit the most from a direct acquisition strategy by the US government, <clears throat> um, what was most positive, I think, is the strong language around assisting the US nuclear fleet around preventing any further early shutdowns of reactors about engaging with the states, presumably on further zero emission credit type schemes, uh, insisting that it's all um, bipartisan, which tried to insulate at least those more tangible aspects or um, nearer term aspects of the policy from uncertainties around the presidential election. So if, if you're looking from a general uranium investor, you're thinking to yourself, this is good news for the utilities. This enables them to plan over a three to five year time frame. And we've talked before about the fact that Sanders dropping out of the race has removed that, that um, potential risk that everything gets turned on its head again for US utilities. And 
Um, the fact that the Democrats have now put forward a centrist, moderate candidate, there's been a lot of very strong bipartisan support for these types of measures. If I'm sitting there as a utility, I'd be sleeping a lot easier after reading that. And that affects the industry in a very direct way for all uranium companies because it's now starting to remove some of the impediments to a return to contracting and giving them the confidence to say, well, you know what, let's go upstairs and ask them for a bit more budget to pick up a few pounds on the spot market while they're nice and cheap. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's something to that. Um, I was thinking from more, again, more tangible um, clues. I mean, one of the things which came out was uh, they talked about direct purchasing in 2020. Big questions there. From where and how much can they get? And how do you, I mean, clearly, if the industry can get to a point where it can get back into production, you can ramp that up. But there's probably, what, a million pounds at surface in the US at the moment? Yeah, and bear in mind that 2020 only starts on 1 October because that's the, the fiscal year. Great point. So I'm, sh- I'm sure there's a lot of negotiations that could take place before then. So, and that 17 to 19 million pounds that they've flagged over 10 years as being the acquisition target, that doesn't need to be in a linear fashion. So without knowing quite what's inside of their heads, there's every chance that they can take their time they were going to want to tick the box of 2020. That came up several times during the report. There's an immediacy to this, which may or may not relate to presidential election timetables. Uh, but it might be that it starts off fairly modest and builds up momentum, increases the numbers of players in the industry. So it's not just the at least two number, but they're broadening the number of producers in the sector and builds up a bit more steam over two or three years. Um, I suppose indicative of what we were just saying, there is no detail around that. So it's left to drawing inferences, um, which doesn't concern me running a company that's got a project in Namibia, but is going to wear a little bit on the, uh, the nerves of investors in those companies that were hoping to be basically receiving a paycheck from this. Yeah, well, in an unknown time frame, um, I think, as you say, there's a lot of unknowns here, but I, I think it's just helpful to kind of go through some of the terminology, just because, again, we're reading through Twitter and social media and feedback and we're getting directly. There's a lot of misconception or misunderstanding um, or missed opportunities to actually understand what things mean. So if, if you can help us, it'd be great. I mean, one of the other things was people talking about, well, what does the uh, ending of the DOE's bartering of uranium mean for the market? That was quite an important aspect of this. So let's talk about the barter. What the DOE barter really means is there was a kerfuffle um, in Congress about funding the cleanup of the Portsmouth um, Cold War nuclear site. Um, It was an industrial site, not a testing site. And uh, the appropriations were blocked to fund that. And so the solution that was come up a number of years ago was, well, we're going to barter uranium. We're going to take the uranium that DOE had the responsibility for cleaning it up. So they said, well, we've got some uranium here. We'll sell that uranium and use that money to pay off the contractors who are doing the cleanup. And very destructive to a fragile market as it was a few years ago because these pounds, apart from being price inelastic, the lower the price went, the more of them they had to sell to pay 
what were static cleanup bills. Um, and there was a reasonable amount still to go. And at one stage it was hitting five million pounds per annum. So uh, secondary supply, totally unhelpful in terms of uh, supporting a spot price recovery. So the Trump administration, to their credit, had already suspended that. Um, they suspended it initially mid fiscal year and then extended it for the further fiscal year. But in theory, there was a question mark about whether that would come up again in the next fiscal year. And now it seems to be totally off the table. They're, they're, the, the mechanisms required now to bed that down are pretty insignificant, particularly when it's the Department of Energy itself that is putting it forward in this document. So that is a good thing. That is a good thing. We know that that secondary supply source isn't going to come back or we'll know that fairly soon. And we're not left wondering whether there's going to be some sort of a U-turn in the approach that they're taking with that barter and all of a sudden we've got three or four or five million pounds that are coming back at the market. Yes, that's interesting. I guess um, more to come um, and hopefully we'll, we'll learn more soon. One of the other things they talked about was levelling the playing field between nuclear energy and renewables. The implications of that, of that being either renewables are going to get less subsidies or nuclear is going to get increased subsidies. How do you think that's going to play out? And are there other implications as well? Yeah, so I think the easiest um, mechanism is to reward nuclear's capacity to A, produce zero emission energy. And that's been the approach, say, in New York State, where there's a zero emission credit or a ZEC that's in place. And B, to reward nuclear energy for its resilience, in other words, um, recognise that during hurricanes, polar vortexes, other events like that, it's only nuclear energy that can provide the fuel source. We even during a polar vortex saw um, coal and gas unable to continue providing energy. And um, so there is capacity that the government's got to recognise the strategic importance of that resilience. Now, on the other side of it, when it comes to some of the subsidies in place for renewables, it will take a little bit longer, but there are some serious distortions in some of the way that those subsidies are applied, um, particularly in wind energy, where subsidies in certain instances continue to be paid even when the grid doesn't need the energy. So you can have a situation where the grid operators imply, uh, imposing congestion charges on all of the players Gas can turn off pretty quickly, right? The congestion charge, we don't want to be paying to provide energy. Nuclear power, which is essential once the wind stops blowing, they can't turn down and load follow quite that quickly and be able to get back up again and make sure everyone's got power for when they get back from work and need to turn the cookers on. So they found themselves paying quite a lot of congestion charges and the distortion, um, which really makes you, would make you sick as a US taxpayer, the distortion is that some of those subsidies continue to be paid to the wind power operators even when they're paying a congestion charge. So they can keep feeding that unneeded destructive power into the grid right up to the point where the congestion charge matches off against the subsidy. And the, the losers there are obviously the taxpayers who pay those unnecessary subsidies, but also the nuclear power operators who need to remain on so that there aren't brownouts or blackouts once the wind stops blowing. They're the sorts of things that do make a big difference for a number of the US utilities 
and their competitiveness in a generalised market. And it's quite right to, for, a, for a government to be interfering, if I can put it that way, in um, redressing those types of uh, unfortunate structures that have come up and otherwise levelling the playing field. Okay, interesting. The next one is, comes back to that geopolitical point we, we did touch upon earlier. It's probably worthy of an entire discussion outside of this, which is um, talks around the extending of the Russian suspension agreement. There, there's a, effectively a quota in place there. Can you tell people what it, just remind people what that actually is, and then perhaps talk about what some of the measures that may be taken, because we've, we've heard varying and quite extreme uh, solutions uh, mooted and put forward. What's your take on it? Yeah, well, look, it, it is a big topic, and maybe rather than diving into that rabbit hole today, I'll just skate over the top of it and tell you what, what might be under there. Uh, so Russian suspension agreement, it is an agreement by which uh, Russia has access to the US market. It was originally for uranium, but it's essentially morphed into enrichment. It came about because of an anti-dumping case where there were concerns that Russia would start dumping cheap uranium, um, for example, that had been produced during the Cold War into the US market. And the way it works in the US is uh, you can suspend an investigation like that by reaching an agreement on how the concerns will be dealt with. And basically what it has become is that Russia um, can provide 20% of the US's enrichment requirements um, through SWU or through enrichment services. Um, and it expires at the end of this year. So without an extension of the suspension agreement, you're then into a situation which is, is A, Russia going to be able to just um, act according to market forces in the US, which probably means providing a lot more material given that they've got excess capacity and enrichment at the moment, or B, will the um, Department of Commerce then reinitiate the original anti-dumping investigation since it's no longer held at bay by the suspension agreement. So what the report has said is that they will support the maintenance of the suspension agreement and potentially look at reducing that figure down. And it's interesting to note that there is a bill that's been put before Congress. Um, one of the sponsors of that bill was Senator Baros, uh, Baro, Barolo, who's been quite involved in supporting the uh, uranium miners. And that's designed to lock down the suspension agreement at 20% and, for, and reduce it over time to 15%. So won't give the utilities this supply shock that uh, locking the Russians out of the market would give, but provide some room for um, reducing the Russian influence in that. How that goes, it's hard to say. Um, the feedback that I've had from within the industry is there's a number of suspension agreements in place at any point in time, and there's a number that are coming up for re uh, review and renewal. And it's been a little bit hard until now to get the attention of the administration in the US to act on this, given it's another six months away. Um, so I think for utilities uh, 
and their degree of planning and certainty, this is probably a positive thing in that it, at least it's now on the table and we know that the DOE has it's got their attention. Okay, well, let, let's do come back to that one because I think that whole big ge- geopolitical component is um, underestimated as to why yep. I think the US wants to come back to the table and how it will possibly help increase their you know, influence and control, um, you know, wider, wider field. Um, let's talk. And, but, and Matt, if I may, and particularly because the Russian suspension agreement also intersects another um, dynamic in the sector that hasn't, doesn't need to be addressed through this document. Mm. Uh, and that's the Iran sanctions waivers. So they kind of work together in terms of creating concern for the utilities about access to Russian enrichment. Mm-hmm. So Let's kick that to a new topic in, in another day. Another day. When we finally get a slow news week in uranium, we can drill down on that. I'll, I'll, I'll book it in for December. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. And the other, the other, uh, one of the other questions which was raised um, on Crux Club, um, actually, and was asking questions about uh, fabrication. Now, the, this document um, that the Department of Energy released talks about the ability uh, to pre- prevent penetration uh, in the U.S. fabrication market. We have touched upon this in previous conversations, but um, what's what's your take on what that could actually mean, and why is it important? Yeah, so it has caused a bit of confusion. I think um, I've seen questions on Twitter uh, and elsewhere about this, um, and on a quick read, what you might pick up from the report is that. Uh, the U.S. will be blocking imports of nuclear fuels from Russia and China. But when you read it a little bit more slowly and read the subtext, what they're actually talking about is enabling in the future uh, the administration or, um, or the relevant department to block imports of fabricated nuclear fuel. So what does fabrication mean? Um, we've talked before about the nuclear fuel cycle that starts with uh, starts with U308, then goes through conversion, then goes to enrichment. And the final step before you can transport a fuel rod in a loadable capacity to a nuclear fuel plant is what's called fabrication in the industry. Highly technological, uh, you know, it's they take what is just an oxide, an enriched oxide, and make it into pellets and then put it into fuel rods for the specific reactor technology that the utility is running. So what this report is saying is they're saying we want to head off at the pass the potential for Russian or Chinese fuel fabricators to undermine or erode the existing fuel fabrication industry in the US, um, of which Westinghouse is a, is a very large player because of the number of reactors that they've built over the time. Um, That's a response to uh, the Russian operator Tvel, who are already, there's already quite a bit of um, cross competition in the fuel fabrication market. So in the old days, the Russians fabricated fuel for the VVER reactors that Rosatom makes, and they had a captive market amongst uh, Eastern Europe and so forth. And um, the Americans, fabricated fuel exclusively for the Westinghouse reactors and and et cetera, et cetera, with some other players. Now, they've been cross-competing, um, particularly as uh, elements of Eastern European 
power demand want to wean themselves off Russian geopolitical influence. And they're wanting to avoid that coming back at them with the, the Russians and ultimately the Chinese uh, eroding their own market in that way. So a long explanation, but for the people out there who read that as thinking that it means that there's going to be a ban on any Russian uranium coming in, uh, that's not what it's designed to do. Okay, interesting, interesting. I guess, again, another thing which will evolve as things are made clear. Now, the, the other bits to this um, is where sort of corporate America steps in, right? Because the government's talking about supporting technological advances. You know, we're talking about SMR generation four uh, technologies. We're talking about exporting those across the world. And again, it comes back to geopolitical, it always does. Um, ex expanding the footprint and reach and influence of, of the US. But can you um, maybe just maybe just talk about some of those points and the importance of them? Because it seems to me, it seems to me that um, it's important that America you know, starts leading from the front and as technolo technology uh, develops, especially around this generation four, which I don't know too much about, um, it's, it is going to allow the US to get the you know the seat back at the table, much to the chagrin of the Chinese and Russians, I suspect. Yeah, it's it's an interesting bigger topic, and we have touched on it in the past, um, where the the US had basically played themselves out of the game on conventional reactors, and interesting to see the rhetoric here uh, where they want to get back into that. But the Trump administration in the early days when Rick Perry was Secretary of Energy, they recognised that they could still um, compete on SMR, small modular reactors and Gen 4 reactors. Ten years ago, the US absolutely dominated that space. Um, and at that time, even some of the more advanced designs, like the pebble bed reactor out of South Africa, um, with uh, the um, transition of government there, that got... Uh, left to rot. So the US was just absolutely in the pound seats to dominate SMRs. And then during the last couple of administrations, that wasn't given any love and attention. Uh, the, and the Russians and the Chinese in particular, they got the jump on the Americans by making sites available to build commercial scale SMRs. So we've seen that, uh, um, for example, uh, the Russians have got a floating nuclear reactor operational now. Now, that's a huge step forward. That, that's big news in the industry because there's a whole market for floating reactors um, that can displace diesel generation in remote sites, for example. Um, the Chinese are doing the same. And so what this is about doing is providing some um, financial support or some incentives to the different technologies, but they also specifically talk about making sure that someone who's got a fairly advanced design doesn't get caught up in the immense amount of green tape that's required to find a place where the NIMBYs don't block a first-of-a-kind um, commercial-scale SMR reactor. And, and that has been going on for a couple of years now. Um, helpfully from the Trump administration. So there's nothing particularly new here, but again, in terms of just rounding out that this report is not about US uranium producers. This report is about the entire nuclear fuel cycle. It's interesting, um, I noted in there, they, they talked about ensuring that financial institutions supported this too. Now, and again, 
Next. Banker, I'm the question. It's a strong word, right? It suggests either the government is going to underwrite this or co in not co-invest, but co-fund some of these projects. So there's some clues as to that how aggressive they're going to be here, because you don't tell financial institutions what to do. They you need to persuade them, because there's got to be an upside for them. So this is fascinating, and there's a much deeper dive to be had on this as oh, well. Oh, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what we will before we have this discussion next time when there's another rainy week in uranium yeah. um, we'll I'll get you a, a couple of um, charts that show the levelized cost of nuclear power depending on where your source of capital comes from yeah. and it um, demonstrates in a really clear way that if you can sovereign finance a nuclear power plant the electricity is vastly cheaper than obtaining private finance and then there's a couple of steps in between, depending on what sort of guarantees you can get and so forth. And that's really what they're getting at. And my read of this is uh, the authors of this report, they were trying to tiptoe between the, uh, the more centralised command approach to this that Russia and China are able to take because of their um, socialist and communist background versus the more market force approach that the US always wants to look like they're taking. But really what I think they're trying to say is this is going to be sovereign funding in one way or another of these reactors so that we've got a chance of competing. Um, so that uh, the market for US nuclear exports, they don't look and say, look, we like the technology, we like all of the proliferation aspects, we like all of this, but hey, your cost of capital's you know, the, 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 the coupon that we're paying on this stuff is three times what we're getting from the Russians or the Chinese. And there's been some good examples of um, the incredible deals that, the, that Russia has underwritten recently that we can come back to when we, um, when we have a dive on this. Okay, that, that, no, I'll be fascinated to talk about that. Now, we used a word earlier, bipartisan, and for non-Americans in the room, that means we would say cross-party or cross the floor over here. I don't know what the phrase would be in, in Australia. Um, but that, We don't have such a thing in Australia. They just, just fight. They, they, okay. okay. Good TV, shouldn't, though. I shouldn't say that. The politicians, they, they've, they've learned how to behave themselves and play nicely with COVID-19. So maybe things will change. Maybe, maybe. Okay. It would be good TV, though. Um, but because of that bipartisan component to this recommendation, um, do you th think the market will have genuinely have less fear about what is going to happen in November in in the US you know should Trump not get back in there's still an awful lot of this intent that's going to need a good shove mm. and I don't think you'd get that good shove from a democratic from a democrat administration right so let's talk about the process um, because I, I don't understand enough about the US process because it seems to be it is bipartisan but it still needs, it needs to get through congress and it doesn't you know, the bipartisan um, drawing up of this recommendation doesn't necessarily ensure it will get through. So how long is that process and what's involved? Well, it, I think one of the um, criticisms of the report on your comment about it lacks detail, which I agree, is it doesn't contain any executive orders or it doesn't reference any new executive orders. So th there's nothing coming out of this report that you can say, right, come next Thursday, this thing is going to happen. Uh, 
the, the most tangible aspects of it are what we already know about fiscal appropriations and so on that, that need to work their way through various committees. Um, so there is a pathway and uh, I don't, other than the um, budgetary, the president's budget that uh, will be agreed in the coming months, a lot of this is still big picture stuff. Even the reference to bringing on conversion by 2022, uh, it's, it's expressed in terms of being an aspiration or an end goal rather than we've got the money to do this. So they talk about taking 150 and they're obviously confident of getting that through and then they will need additional support and additional finances to do those extra things. Um, and because it is, you know, like you say, it's pretty complex stuff that we're talking about and this is a big picture uh, statement of intent, that's going to take time to work through and I don't see that getting worked through um, before the next presidential election. So there is a risk that some of these measures will uh, hang in the balance and only if we see a, a Trump administration returned in November, we will see them carry on with the, the vigour and the, the intent that they're expressed in this document. There's a lot of intent. It's a big topic. It re will require billions, if not hundreds of billions of investment by the, the US government. Um, and I, I certainly, for one, would like to see a bit more colour of, of the importance of you know, which bits they consider most important and which bits will get addressed sooner. I mean, the conversion, which you just mentioned, by 2022, uh, you know, how does that happen? Is it an important uh, uh, cog in the, in the wheel or could, could they not do that and this, this whole process work just fine for them? Because it, it comes back to, and this whole document is addressing US security. That, that's what this thing's about. So um, I think they understand it better than they did when this thing started off with the 232, Section 232 petition. But um, do they know how to put it all together or is this just a sort of glorified school essay? I think at the conversion level, it's relatively simple once you've got the money. Uh, we have the situation where Convidine put the Metropolis Works conversion facility, America's only conversion capacity, into care and maintenance. They didn't shut it down. There's been a lot of discussion between them and the government about what's required to restart. They've made it pretty clear, much like the uranium miners in the US, that uh, they're going to need sustained contracted prices that are far better than um, where they were when they put that facility onto care and maintenance. And clearly, there's a role that the government can play, um, not only in terms of direct procurement, as they're foreshadowing here, and, and for everybody there, their target of six to seven and a half thousand tonnes of UF6 per annum um, is very close to the reduced capacity of that facility. At, or the capacity it was operating at when they uh, put it into care and maintenance. So there's a scenario where they just say, right, you've got one customer and what do you need and off we go. Um, but there's other support that they can give in terms of future remediation costs. Um, they've already supported that facility because it had a licence renewal come up in the period that it's been on care and maintenance. So that, that licence has now been extended all the way to 2060. Uh, so they've got a lot of time on their hands, but it's a, it's old in the tooth. It's got 
undoubtedly very large remediation costs if they had to close it down and it's not competitive uh, at current contracted conversion prices they'd need to take the current spot price and really just roll that out over the over the medium to longer term as a as a contract or a bundle of contracts to make that facility viable again okay. and look 2022 that'd be good timing for the uranium sector uh, there is um, a bottleneck in conversion at the moment, which has led to preferential buying of inventories of UF6 and EUP, enriched uranium product. So de-bottlenecking that releases more capacity for utilities to stockpile and restock in uranium, knowing that they can bring it through the fuel cycle and uh, have those inventories in UF6 uh, which is a lot closer to where they need it for, particularly if they're doing it for risk mitigation purposes. So essentially reducing that bottleneck in conversion is a very good thing. And interestingly, that timing would work very well for the uranium sector as well, because 2022, um, that's the earliest that um, any new contracting of uranium would expect to start running through a conversion facility. Right. Thank you for that. I think that's a nice fulsome answer we, we, we've come across in the past few days on quite a big topic, quite an important topic. Um, there's something that we do in the Crux Club for our members, which is something called red flags and green lights. So I think there's, in our talk today, there's a lot of green lights. There are some things which need further explaining, which probably would creep into the, in, into the red flags section. But the, one of the big ones, big red flags for me um, on this report would be um, civil servants, as we call them here in the, in the UK, so government uh, officials getting involved in the private sector, albeit with you know, public companies on the, on the whole, but, but also in the private sector, um, and trying to you know, push, push things along. I just don't know how they engage, moving from the kind of bubble of Washington, or you know, we'd have it here in, in, in Parliament, moving from that, that, that bubble into making things actually happen in a uh, meaningful, uh, expedited time frame. You know, how do you think industry is going to interact with moving this proposal forward? Yeah, it's a really good question. Look, I'm probably not the best person to give you an answer on that um, because I don't have first-hand experience of working with um, out of the US government on getting stuff done. Um, what is worth bearing in mind, though, is there's been a heavy in government involvement in this sector forever. It's always been that way. There's a lot of cooperation between the private sector and the government sector in these matters, and as is the case with military, for example. And my observation is that there's a lot of talent in the US government that finds its way into these critically, uh, strategically critical aspects of American industry. Um, and when you look at uh, some of the talent that's on display in the um, Department of Energy, uh, it gives you a lot of comfort, I think, that they will be able to produce some good results here. Um, Suzanne Jarodowski is absolutely a, an incredible spokesperson for the nuclear sector, very competent. She um, came into the DOE uh, after the Trump administration came in, she's presented at WNA. Um, the, it, we had her at the Australian Nuclear 
um, um, organization recently providing a, uh, a talk on how SMRs could apply to the Australian market. So if, if she is the indication of what is available to the private sector, yeah, I'd be feeling pretty good about it. Okay. I guess we better wrap it up here. But my, my summation of what I'm hearing today from you is um, it's a good report, positive for the industry, positive for uranium mining. It, the report was as much as you expected it to say. It was capable of saying it shows serious intent. The fundamentals, supply demand fundamentals have not changed. Believe in those if you're as an investor in, in uranium mm -hmm. equities. Um, and let's just sit back and see how this thing plays out as far as the US Department of Energy is concerned. Yep, and there's one thing that we sort of glossed over, but it's done, it's out there, finally. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've looked at it from the perspective of uranium investors, but finally the utilities don't have to be wondering what could possibly come out of the administration with this report. And that's very, very important. So I agree with that. There's nothing negative in it from the sector point of view. There's lots of intent that could be very positive, but the overriding good thing out of this is it's done. New process starts though. We've yeah. got, we've got, new week, new catalyst. We've got a new thing to worry about now. Fantastic. Uh, the story runs and runs and it gives and gives. That's wonderful. Well, look, Brian, thanks so much for today. Uh, as always, hugely intelligent commentary, insightful. We've, I've learned stuff today. I think people watching this will, will learn from that. And it, it, it clears up a, a bit of confusion around terminology as well and a couple of big topics to discuss uh, at some future date. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.